It is strangely mild weather for December, but spring has not arrived. Possibly it is so with some of my hearers. Because the Lord is smiling upon you, it is very mild weather with your souls, and you dream that the winter of trouble is ended and that your heaven has begun. Be not deceived. You are not yet where the everlasting spring abides and never withering flowers. Perhaps a touch of frost may do you good by preventing your getting into an unnatural and unsound condition. Thus much, then, upon the first point of toning down of our joys, which is wisely managed by our Father's wisdom and prudence. Two, secondly, we are to see how this toning down is done and observe the feelings by which the sobering effect is produced. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Why fear and tremble? Is not this in part a holy awe of God's presence? Remember the text, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The argument for fear and trembling is the work of God in the soul. Because God is working in you, there must be no trifling. If the eternal deity designs to make a workshop of my nature, I must too work, but it must be with fear and trembling. So then, the blessed presence of God in the believer's joy, in the very fact that he has worked it in him, is a cause for the fear and trembling which comes over the spirit of the joyous believer, and that I think is the first meaning of our text. God has been very good to me, unspeakably good to me, and I have plainly seen the traces of his fatherly hand in my life. Yet I have so seen them that I have cried out with adoring amazement in many a Bethel. How dreadful is this place! It is none other than the house of God and the very gate of heaven. So hath it been with you, dear friends, when God has come very near to you in a blaze of mercy, when he has done things that you looked not for, when your mouth has been filled with laughter and your tongue with singing because of his goodness, have you not at the same time felt overcome by the excess of his favor? Have you not been able to sympathize with Peter when at the sight of his boat full of fish he cried, Depart from me? I am a sinful man, O Lord. Have you not felt a solemn trembling like Mona when he feared that he must die because he had seen an angel of the Lord? I know it has been so with you. A little mercy would have made you sing, but a great mercy has made you sit in silence before the Lord or fall on your knees in adoration. A common providence would have charmed you, but an extraordinary providence has overwhelmed you. You have lain in the dust at Jesus' feet, feeling yourself to be but dust and ashes, and yet every particle of dust has been full of wondering love to God. This is one way in which God keeps his people right in the days of their joy. Where a shallow drink might have intoxicated, 
he gives so deep a draught that the danger is past and holy wonder takes the place of unholy pride. But next to that there rises up in the mind of every favored Christian a deep repentance of past sin. He asks this question, How could I have lived as I have done when God has entertained such love towards me? When I discovered the election of God's grace, and when I saw at what a price I had been redeemed by our Lord Jesus, I was ashamed of all my evil ways. When I read my name inscribed on the palms of Jesus' hands, when I understood that I was united to Him by a union that never could be broken, I said to myself, What a thousand fools I have been to have lived forgetful of my highest glory, unmindful of my dearest friend, to have lived year after year in open enmity against my Lord seemed like a grim and ghastly dream, almost too horrible to be true. Have you not felt the same? Have you not felt ashamed and confounded at the memory of your former life? Have you not felt as if you could never open your mouth any more because of all your unkindness to your heavenly friend? Such penitent reflections keeps the Lord's people right by creating a fear and trembling in the presence of His overflowing goodness. Let me ask you another question. Has not your deepest sense of unworthiness come upon you when you have been conscious of superlative mercy? When the Lord has scourged and chastened you, you have seen your sins in your souls and have been ashamed. But by the memory of His great goodness, you have been far more corrected and humbled. When our secret sins are set in the light of God's countenance, it is a light indeed. Oh, the shame my soul has known when the Lord has caressed me, when He has kissed me with the kisses of His mouth. Then I have said, O oh Lord, whence is this to me? What am I that Thou dost deal thus lovingly with me? It was when Jehovah came and showed Himself to Job, not in chastening, not with fire of God, or whirlwind, nor with sore boils and banes, but as his own dear covenant God, it was then that Job said, Now mine eyes seeth thee, therefore I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Love makes the crimson of sin more red than ever. Blood-bought pardon makes sin look black as sackcloth of hair. I tell you, sirs, it is not the flames of hell, but the glories of heaven that most of all fills us with trembling before the Lord. Nothing touches the heart like undeserved and unexpected love. Love's glance flashes to the very core of the heart and makes the offender, like Peter, go forth and weep bitterly. Do we not each cry, Would God I could never sin again? Oh, that I could perfectly serve my God without a slip, even to my last day, because of his great love to me. We tremble and are afraid because of the unutterable grace which has met our utter unworthiness and rivaled it, until grace has gone unto itself the victory. Have you never noticed how the Lord brings his people to their bearings and keeps them steady under a sense of great love? by suggesting to their hearts the question, 
How can I live as becometh one who has been favored like this? Did you ever feel that the glory of the palace of love made you afraid to dwell in it? When you have put on your best apparel, those garments which are whiter than any fuller on earth could make them, the matchless righteousness of God, have you not felt fearful of defiling your robes? Did you ever see yourselves adorned as a bride for her husband in all the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit? And have you not said to yourselves, What manner of people ought we to be? You have scarcely known which way to turn or how to move. You feared to walk lest you should defile those silver sandals and those feet so newly washed. You did not know what to touch for fear you should stain those hands which Christ has jeweled with his love and made white as ivory with his effectual cleansing. Have you not felt as if you dared not speak till you had prayed, Lord, open thou my lips? Have you not been afraid to look for fear your eyes should glance on evil? And therefore you have prayed, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. There has been such a fear, such a caution, such a holy jealousy upon you that instead of being uplifted by favor, you have been humbled thereby. Grace never makes a man vain. When a soul is adorned with glory and beauty and made to shine like the star of the morning, it owes its borrowed comeliness and brightness in its mildly radiant with reflected rays. When raised up by the special favor of our God into communion with himself, we are afraid of trespassing against the decorum of almighty love fearful of violating the propriety of sovereign grace. The Lord our God is a jealous God, and he will be had in reverence of those who are round about him. This fact has made us feel like those apostles who were filled with fear as well as with great joy. To know how to behave ourselves in the house of God has been our anxiety. We have felt like a poor countryman bred and born in the wilds, who finds himself in a court and feels strange in such a place. Thus have we been clothed with humility as we have worn the garments of praise. Exalted to be kings and priests, our kingdom and priesthood have called forth our careful thought and vainglory has thus been banished. And have you never felt a fear lest God's goodness should be abused by you? I have been smitten to the very heart as with a secret blow in moments of delight when I have thought and suppose after all I should not serve God faithfully in my favored position and should not be approved of him at the last. What if I should speak of Christ and yet be nothing better than a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal? What heart-piercing fear will wound pride, if anything will. Have you never been thus put to the question by your conscience? Have you not other questions arisen of a similar character? You have seen your children around you, and you have been happy with them, but have you not thought, how if I should not train them aright, 
and they should grow up to be a sorrow to me and a displeasure to the church of God? When prospered in business, have you never said to yourself, What if I should become a worshipper of the golden calf? What if covetousness should eat out the heart of my devotion? What if, when my master calls me to account for my talents, he should cast me away for having hid them in a napkin? Have you never been tried by such thoughts? If you have never thus examined yourself, you had better do so at once. He who has never questioned his own condition had better make an immediate inquiry. He who has never felt great searchings of heart needs to be searched with candles. It is idle to take things for granted, for all of us must be tried by fire, and even the righteous scarcely are saved. No man's hell shall be more terrible than that of the self-confident one who made so sure of heaven that he would not take the ordinary precaution to ask whether his title deeds were genuine or no. One more thought may also occur to the most jealous believer. He will say, What if after rejoicing in all this blessedness I should lose it? What, cries one, do you not believe in the final perseverance of the saints? Assuredly I do, but are we saints? There's the question. Moreover, many a believer who has not lost his soul has nevertheless lost his present joy and prosperity, and why may not we? The good man has shone as a star of the first magnitude, but suddenly he has dwindled into darkness. He has been unwatchful, and in consequence, by the dozen years together, he has had to go softly in the bitterness of his soul. We have known fathers in Israel who have stepped aside, and though they have by deep repentance found their way to heaven, they have gone sorrowing thither. Look at David's history. Who happier all the early part of his life? Note that one sin with Bathsheba, and ask who was more tired and troubled than David throughout the rest of his pilgrimage. The doctrine of final perseverance was never intended for the comfort of any who are afraid of self-examination or who are not watchful, for it is by no means at variance with the other doctrine that many who made sure of heaven in their own minds will never enter there, because Jews never knew them. Great joy may be only a meteor. Great excitement may be a mirage of the desert. Great confidence may be a will-of-the-wisp luring to destruction. The highest seats in the synagogues do not secure for their occupants a place among the shining ones above. Many rejoicing professors will yet discover that their spot was not the spot of God's people, and their song was not the new song which God put into the mouth. And what if that should be your case and mine? So, when I stand upon my high mountain, let me pray, Lord, hold thou me up. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall, for he is the man who is most in danger. He who is fullest of holy delight is still to watch, for did not Jesus say, What I say unto you, I will say unto all, Watch. God grant 
that we may be helped to watch against the arrow which flieth by day as much as against the pestilence which walketh in darkness. Thus you see how the Lord, by working upon our innermost feelings, sobers us in the hour of joy, even as the text hath it. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. 3. By way of a practical application, let us now consider the measure in which you and I can enter into this experience. I thought to myself, if I begin to make individual applications, I shall have before me a never-ending task, because every man has had a distinct experience of this truth if he has safely stood upon the high places of joy. We have hundreds of us perceived the benefits of the dark lines and shadings of life's pitcher, and we see how fit and proper it is that trembling should mingle with transport. As the fruit of experience, I have learned to look for a hurricane soon after an unusually delightful calm. When the wind blows hard and the tempest lowers, I hope that before long there will be a lull. But when the seabirds sit on the wave and the sail hangs idly, I wonder when a gale will come. To my mind, there is no temptation so bad as not being tempted at all. The worst devil in the world is when you cannot see the devil at all, because the villain has hidden himself away within the heart and is preparing to give you a fatal stab. More the treacherous calm I dread, the tempest thundering overhead. This general statement may suffice, and I cannot make an application to each one personally. I think I will apply the truth to this church as a whole. When this building was not yet ready for opening, we had a meeting in it, and I remember among the speakers there was one who is now with God, Mr. Jonathan George of Walworth, and he made use of this text in a little speech that he made. He said, It would be well for us all to remember when God blesses us with any measure of prosperity, that prosperity is very hard to bear. How is that? Cannot Christianity or the grace of God bear it? No, it is because of the extreme carnality and pride of our hearts. Here is a portion of scripture we should all recollect. They shall fear and tremble for all the prosperity that I send. It is a blessing when God has succeeded our poor efforts and poured out a blessing upon us if we are jealous of our own hearts in fear and tremble. O God, how rich, how beneficent thou art! Let us not lose thy full blessing by our own pride, by pointing to some second cause and saying, It was I, it was ourselves, it was our ministers. Verily I say unto you, the words of the man of God have been fulfilled. How I have feared and trembled because the Lord's mercy to us has been so extraordinary. As a church, we have enjoyed so many years of growth and prosperity and unity and happiness that one is apt to fear that it cannot last much longer. 
certainly it cannot be perpetuated except by fresh power from the Lord, who is wonderful in working. One begins to think, must not something happen to spoil our concord? Will power always continue with the word preached? Will not the candle burn low in the socket? Such holy jealousy, if faith be also active, will help to keep us right. Evils may be prevented by the foresight of them. Through grace, by our fear of falling, we may be helped to stand. Brethren, we are just now in a critical time of our life as a church. Whatever of novelty there was about our movements has long since vanished, and those who came among us from curiosity know us no more. Your pastor's ministry cannot be expected to be as fresh and vigorous as it used to be, for upon his head the gray hairs far outnumber the darker ones, and perhaps gray hairs are stealing over his preaching too. If natural vigor fails, now is the time to see whether the power which has sustained us be of God or no. We know what the answer to the text will be. Out of weakness we shall be made strong. Besides, my brethren, certain invaluable helpers who were with us in the beginning, our rare men, they were, are going home. One by one our leaders are being called away. Will more be found? Will they be of equal worth and weight? I know they will. Yet these are solemn questions. We are in the middle of the river now, and in the middle of the river is deepest and hardest to ford. Now we need that underneath us there should be the everlasting arms. I am weaker than ever, you also are weaker than ever, but the eternal God faileth not. We have the same old gospel, and you will not grow tired of it, though it is preached by the same old Spurgeon. The Holy Spirit will abide with us, and that will make up for the weakness of our spirit. You who have been earnest at prayer will not, I hope, lose your zeal, for the mercy seat is still accessible. To persevere is the difficulty. It would be easy to burn at the stake for five minutes, but to be surrounded with smoldering faggots of green wood and to burn by slow degrees would be torture indeed, yet such is the patience of saints. Keeping up your burning zeal, your personal holiness, your evangelizing efforts, and all your spiritual works after twenty-seven years is no mean test of your faith. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Yes, brethren, these are the thoughts that come into my mind and prevent my ever saying we have done well and may rest on our oars. Far from anything like exaltation or self-congratulation, I feel more than ever inclined to lie low at the feet of my Master and kiss the very dust he stands upon. I feel more disqualified, more unsuitable, more unable for my Lord's work than ever, and yet I am glad in the Lord and find joy in His name. Since there is an everlasting arm that never can be palsied, since there is a brow that knows no wrinkle, in the divine mind that is never perplexed, 
we go forward in hope and cast ourselves upon our eternal helper once again. You have heard of the ancient giant Antaeus, who could not be overcome, because as often as Hercules threw him to the ground, he touched his mother earth and rose renewed. Such be our lot and mine, often to be cast down, and as often to rise up by that downcasting. When I am weak, then I am strong. Let us glory in infirmity, because the power of Christ doth rest upon us. Let us be content to decrease that Christ may increase, to be nothing that Jesus may be all in all. If we do fear and tremble for all the goodness that God has procured for us, it is not a fearing that he will change, or a trembling lest he should be defeated. The fear and trembling are for ourselves and not for him. I have no fear and trembling about the gospel. I have preached it many years in this place, and its attractive perfume is undiminished. I read the other day of a grain of musk which had been kept for ten years in a room wherein the air was perpetually changed. It scented that chamber from year to year, and yet when it was weighed by the most delicate scales, no diminution of its bulk was apparent. So the gospel continues to be as ointment poured forth, savoring the thousands that come hither year by year, and yet it is as full of fragrance and freshness as ever, and so shall it be even if for a thousand ages it should be our theme. Come we then with comfort back to the unalterable gospel, to the undying spirit, to the unchanging God. Here is room for joy unspeakable and full of glory. Up with your banners then, forward to the new victories. In the name of the God of Jacob, let us be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Chapter 6, page 49 Why are men saved? Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. Psalm 106, verse 8 In looking upon the works of God in creation, there are two questions which at once occur to the thoughtful mind and which must be answered before we can procure a clue to the philosophy and science of creation itself. The first one is the question of authorship. Who made all these things? And the next question is that of design. For what purpose were all these things created? The first question, who made all these things, is one which is easily answered by a man who has an honest conscience and a sane mind. For when he lifts his eyes up yonder to read the stars, he will see those stars spell out in golden letters this word, God. And when he looks below upon the waves, if his ears are honestly open, he will hear each wave proclaiming, God. If he looks to the summits of the mountains, they will not speak, but with dignified answer of silence, they seem to say, The hand that made us is divine. If we listen to the rippling of the flood at the mountainside, to the trembling of the avalanche, to the lowing of the cattle, 
to the singing of the birds, to every voice and sound of nature. We shall hear this answer to the question, God is our maker. He hath made us, and not we ourselves. The next question as to design, why were these things made, is not so easy to answer apart from Scripture. But when we look at Scripture we discover this fact, that as the answer to the first question is God, so the answer to the second question is the same. Why were these things made? The answer is, for God's glory, for His honor, and for His pleasure. No other answer can be consistent with reason. Whatever other replies men may propound, no other can be really sound. If they will for one moment consider that there was a time when God had no creatures, when He dwelt alone, the mighty Maker of ages, glorious in an uncreated solitude, divine in His eternal loneliness, I am and there is none beside me. Can anyone answer this question? Why did God make creatures to exist in any other way than by answering it thus? He made them for his own pleasure and for his own glory. You may say, he made them for his creatures, but we answer, there were no creatures to make them for. We admit that the answer may be a sound one now. God makes the harvest for his creatures. He hangs the sun in the firmament to bless his creatures with light and sunshine. He bids the moon walk in her course by night to cheer the darkness of his creatures upon earth. But the first answer, going back to the origin of all things, can be nothing else than this. For his pleasure they are and were created. He made all things for himself and by himself. Now this which holds good in the works of creation holds equally good in the works of salvation. Lift up your eyes on high, higher than those stars which glimmer on the floor of heaven. Look up where spirits in white, clearer than light, shine like stars in their magnificence. Look there where the redeemed with their choral symphonies circle the throne of God rejoicing and put this question, Who saved those glorified beings, and for what purpose were they saved? We tell you that the same answer must be given as we have previously given to the former question. He saved them. He saved them for his name's sake. The text is an answer to the two great questions concerning salvation. Who saved men, and why are they saved? He saved them for his name's sake. Into this subject I shall endeavor to look this morning. May God make it profitable to each of us, and may we be found among the number who shall be saved for his name's sake. Treating the text verbally, and that is the way most will understand, here are four things. First, a glorious Savior. He saved them. Secondly, a favored people. He saved them. Thirdly, a divine reason why he saved them, for his name's sake. And fourthly, an obstruction conquered in the word, nevertheless, implying that there was some difficulty that was removed. Nevertheless, he saved them.
for his name's sake. A savior, the saved, the reason, the obstruction removed. One. First then, here is a glorious savior. He saved them. Who is to be understood by the pronoun he? Possibly many of my hearers may answer why the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of men. Right, my friends, but not all the truth. Jesus Christ is the Savior, but not more so than God the Father or God the Holy Ghost. Some persons who are ignorant of the system of divine truth think of God the Father as being a great being full of wrath and anger and justice, but having no love. They think of God the Spirit, perhaps, as a mere influence proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now nothing can be more incorrect than such opinions. It is true, the Son redeems me, but then the Father gave the Son to die for me, and the Father chose me in the everlasting election of His grace. The Father blots out my sin. The Father accepts me and adopts me into His family through Christ. The Son could not save without the Father any more than the Father without the Son. And as for the Holy Spirit, if the Son redeems, know ye not that the Holy Ghost regenerates? It is He that makes us new creatures in Christ, who begets us again unto a lively hope, who purifies our soul, who sanctifies our spirit, and who at last presents us spotless and faultless before the throne of the Most High, accepted in the Beloved. When thou sayest, Savior, remember there is a trinity in that word, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Savior being three persons under one name. Thou canst not be saved by the Son without the Father, nor by the Father without the Son, nor by the Father and Son without the Spirit. But as they are one in creation, so are they one in salvation working together in one God for our salvation, and unto that God be glory everlasting, world without end. Amen. But note here how this divine being claimed salvation wholly to himself. Nevertheless, he saved them. But Moses, where art thou? Didst not thou save them, Moses? Thou didst stretch the rod over the sea, and it clave in halves. Thou came and the flies swarmed, and the water was turned into blood, and the hail smote the land of Egypt. Wast not thou their savior, Moses? And thou, Aaron, thou didst offer the bullocks which God accepted. Thou didst lead them with Moses through the wilderness. Wast not thou their savior? They answer, Nay, we were the instruments, but he saved them. God made use of us, but unto his name be all the glory, and none unto ourselves. But Israel, thou wast a strong and mighty people. Didst not thou save thyself? Perhaps it was thine own holiness that the Red Sea was dried up. Perhaps thou potted floods were frightened at the piety of the saints that stood on their margin. Perhaps it was Israel that delivered itself. Nay, nay, saith God's word, he saved them. They did not save themselves, nor did their fellow men redeem them. And yet, mark you, there are some who dispute this point, who think that men save themselves, or at least that priests and preachers can help to do it. 
we say that the preacher under God may be the instrument of arresting men's attention, of warning him and arousing him. But the preacher is nothing. God is everything. The most mighty eloquence that ever distilled from the lips of seraphic preacher is nothing apart from God's Holy Spirit. Neither Paul, nor Paulus, nor Cephas are anything. God gave the increase, and God must have all the glory. There are some we meet with here and there who say, I am Mr. So-and-so's convert. I am a convert of Reverend Dr. So-and-so. Well, if you are, sir, I cannot give you much hope of heaven. Only God's converts go there, not proselytes of men, but the redeemed of the Lord. Oh, it is very little to convert a man to our own opinions. It is something to be the means of converting them to the Lord, our God. I had a letter some time ago from a good Baptist minister in Ireland who very much wanted me to come over to Ireland, as he said, to represent the Baptist interest because it was so low there and perhaps it might lead the people to think a little more of Baptists. I told him I would not go across the street merely to do that, much less would I cross the Irish Channel. I should not think of going to Ireland for that, but if I might go there to make Christians under God and be the means of bringing men to Christ, I would leave it to them what they should be afterwards and trust to God's Holy Spirit to direct and guide them as to what denomination they should consider nearest akin to God's truth. Brethren, I might make all of you Baptists, perhaps, and yet you would be none the better for it. I might convert you all in that way, but such a conversion would be that you would be washed to greater stains, converted into hypocrites, and not into saints. I have seen something of wholesale conversion. Great revivalists have risen up. They have preached thundering sermons. They have made men's knees knock together. What a wonderful man, people have said. He has converted so many under one sermon. But look for his converts in a month, and where will they be? You will see some of them in the alehouse. You will hear others of them swear. You will find many of them rogues and cheats because they were not God's converts, but only man's. Brethren, if the work be done at all, it must be done of God. For if God do not convert, there is nothing done that shall last, and nothing that shall be of any avail for eternity. But some reply, Well, sir, but men convert themselves. Yes, they do, and a fine conversion it is. Very frequently they convert themselves. But then that which man did, man undoes. He who converts himself one day, unconverts himself the next. He tieth a knot which his fingers can loosen. Remember this, you may convert yourselves a dozen times over, but that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and cannot see the kingdom of God. It is only that which is born of the Spirit that is spirit, and is therefore able to be gathered at last into the spirit realm where only spiritual things can be found before the throne of the Most High. We must reserve this prerogative wholly to God. If any man state that God is not creator, 
we call him infidel. If any man entrench upon this doctrine that God is the absolute maker of all things, we hiss him down in a moment. But he is an infidel of the worst kind, because more plausible, who puts God out of the mercy throne instead of putting him out of the creation throne, and who tells men that they may convert themselves, whereas God doeth it all. He only, the great Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, he saved them for his name's sake. Thus have I endeavored to set out clearly the first truth of the divine and glorious Savior. 2. Now secondly, the favored persons. He saved them. Who are they? You will reply, they are the most respectable people that could be found in the world. They were a very prayerful, loving, holy, and deserving people, and therefore, because they were good, he saved them. Very well, that is your opinion. I will tell you what Moses says. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not thy multitudes of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them. Look at the seventh verse, and you will have their character. In the first place, they were stupid people. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. In the next place, they were ungrateful people. They remembered not the multitudes of thy mercies. In the third place, they were provoking people. They provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Ah, these are the people whom free grace saves. These are the men, and these are the women, whom the God of all grace condescends to take to his bosom and make anew. Note first that they were a stupid people. God sends his gospel not always to the wise and prudent, but unto fools. He takes the fool and makes him know the wonders of his dying love. Do not suppose, my hearer, because you are very unlettered and can scarcely read, do not imagine because you have always been brought up in extreme ignorance and have scarcely learnt to spell your name that therefore you cannot be saved. God's grace can save you and enlighten you. A brother minister once told me a story of a man who was known in a certain village as a simpleton and was always considered to be soft in the head. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.reformation.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.